is Thrive Perspectives, an ever-growing discussion about the issues that shape our lives with your guides, Dr. Matthew Jacoby and DJ Payne. Matthew, it's a very special podcast, this podcast. Yes. uh, Because it's not very often where we can say, we've got a guest. We've got a guest. <laughs> so I'm going to let you, because this is a man that you work with. Yes, that's right. At the Melbourne School of Theology. That's right, yeah. So I'm going to let you do all the introductions. Well, we are very privileged to have uh, Dr. Bernie Power with us. Uh, welcome, Bernie. Hi, great to be with you. It's <laughs> it's great to have you. Thanks for coming down uh, to our studio. Uh, so... Uh, today we're, we're going to actually talk about uh, Islam today and a Christian perspective uh, on Islam. And um, Bernie, you have uh, this is uh, an area that you've done a lot of study in and uh, a lot of work in and a lot of debates and conversations. I thought it might be interesting actually for you to introduce a little bit about yourself and your background mm. and how you came to even speak fluent Arabic <laughs> and and be you know so engaged uh, with, uh, with with Islam uh, as you have been so uh, yeah uh, what's been going on for the last few decades <laughs> yeah quite a few decades yeah um, so I grew up in um, in Sydney in Bankstown in a, yeah. a good working class Catholic family one, yeah. of, one of eight children yeah. um, Catholic schools all the way through and so we were quite religious said the rosary every night and so God was always kind of a part of that. Yeah. But it wasn't until I went to university, Sydney, doing a science degree that I met a couple of Christians, uh, biblical Christians who talked about their faith and it was all completely new to me. Mm. And and through that process, I actually mm. came to a personal faith in mm. Jesus. And I remember one of my first feelings was I felt a bit betrayed by these Christians for not having told me this before. Why did I have to wait till I was 21 to hear the good news? <laughs> and so I decided I, I shouldn't do that to other people. So I'll go and share the good news with them. So I got out and took every opportunity that I could to share with others and became a school teacher, um, moved down to Melbourne and went to a missions conference. And a guy said, you know, in Melbourne we have a thousand churches. There's a church in every suburb, several churches. If people want to hear the gospel, they can. But what about the Muslim world at that time? This was in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, there were only... Um, he said 2,000 missionaries working in the whole of the Muslim world, so oh, nearly yeah. a fifth of the world's population at that time. Uh, and he said Muslims are not people who've rejected the gospel. They're people who've never even heard it once. Wow. And we're looking for people who will go. So I put my hand up, and that was really my call to mission. So mm. um, I then left teaching, um, I went to theological college. Uh, it was Bible College Victoria at that time, um, met a, a beautiful medical student and we're celebrating our 40th anniversary, mm-hmm. wedding anniversary next year. Hey. Um, and we both had this desire to go and serve God overseas. So we headed off in 1986 with an eight-month-old baby and um, wow. spent the next 21 years there, had a second son while we were there. And, and where, where is there? Yeah, where, 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 there? Oh, yeah, there were several places. Initially, it was going to be Pakistan where we, we went. We mm. were there for four years and then one day a couple of police came and knocked on our door and said, get out of here. Um, So we got expelled. Um, Then we moved to Jordan, studied Arabic. So that's where we got the Arabic from. We learned Urdu in Pakistan Mm. uh, and then went to Oman um, and we were there for four years. And then the police came and knocked on our door and said, get out of here. So we had to leave there. And then Was that another four years in Oman? Yeah, so we thought we had a a shelf life of four years. So... uh, (laughs) um, 
uh, and then we went to Yemen and we were there for our final eight years. Yeah, so wow. those were the four countries that yeah. we worked in. Now, wow. Yemen, my goodness, that was uh, – do, do you mind going into detail? I mean, <laughs> my, my perception of a missionary going into Yemen, that's like – enemy territory type of thing. How, how was that for you, the eight years there? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was, it was quite good uh, in terms of, so you have to go in as something. You can't just go in as a missionary. Um, so I went in as an English teacher. My wife's a doctor, so she was doing medical work. So between the two of those professions, we um, yeah worked in, in a whole lot of different different kinds of fields. Yemeni people are very down-to-earth people. They are, you know, tell it like it is. Um, yeah, if, if they don't, if, uh, if they don't like what you're telling them, they'll pull out a gun and shoot you. Well, everyone carries guns, so you wow. know, okay, there are 20 yeah. million people and 60 million guns in the country. Um, so pretty, yeah, pretty wild place. So it was a bit like the Wild West, um, yeah. But yeah, because we spoke Arabic, um, yeah, we wore local dress, yeah, um, yeah, we got on okay with people. Okay, yeah, great. So we're going to talk a little bit uh, about uh, Islam, um, Bernie, and of course this is um, uh, this is an area that you've taught and studied in extensively. And um, I thought it, it would be good, first of all, uh, because Islam revolves so much around the person of Muhammad. Uh, and uh, I guess that's a good place to start around the life of Muhammad, because I understand that um, they not only look to their scriptures, the Quran, but also very much to Muhammad as a would you say as a kind of model figure for them? They, they would see him as the most perfect person who's ever worked, walked on the earth. So okay. they've got a really high view of Muhammad. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Can, can I ask you a real fundamental question? This is for the dummies who are, yeah. who are listening along like me. Some people just exchange, like if I'm watching the news, they'll talk about Muslim, they'll talk about Islam, Islamic, Muslim. Like what's the difference in the two words? Yeah, okay, yep. So Islam is the religion and Muslim is the person who follows the religion. Mm. Sort of like... Christianity and Christian. Christian yeah. mm-hmm. So Islam and Muslim. Muslim is the person who. Is, yes, okay, yeah. follow up. Great, good. <laughs> Foundational thing for us yeah, to start yeah. off with yeah. here. Uh, that's good. Yeah. So, uh, so tell us a bit about uh, a bit about Muhammad then. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, according to the, and I'll give you the kind of the traditional um, historical explanation. He's born in 570 AD uh, to uh, a woman named Amina. His his father actually died before he was born, um, and in the city of Mecca, which is still the center center of Islam, and um, grew up pretty um, uh, unimpressive kind of um, life. Um, Mecca at that time was a, and the whole of Arabia was a pagan, um, idol worshipping mm. people, mm-hmm. and uh, there were some Christians and some Jews around, but they were kind of a small minority. And uh, at about age forty, Muhammad received uh, a call. He was in a cave meditating, and a, sp- a being appeared and said to him, "You know, you're a prophet. I want you to go out and preach to the people." And the message he took to them was quite interesting. He said, um, first of all, turn away from the idols." and worship the one true God who is Allah Mm. and start living righteous lives. And that sounded a bit like the Old Testament prophets. Mm. Um, And and he actually picked up a lot of stuff from from Jewish people and Christian people that were Mm. there. And uh, this was a very unpopular message. Um, The 
um, people of Mecca didn't like it because the gods were the kind of the centre of their their um, economic system. Mm. They had a, a big black box in the middle, which is still there, called the Kaaba in the centre of Mecca, and they had 360 idols in it, and people would come from all around Arabia to worship these idols. So it's a bit like the, the Greek pantheon, you know, they had yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, every, you know, you had your God and, the, and your mate's God and you would just go and worship them, mm. but that would bring money in. And mm. he said, well, get rid of these. And they said, well, if we do, then that'll be the end of us as a town. And so for 12 years, he uh, preached this message, very poor response. He only got a few followers um, and they were mostly the, the poor and the dispossessed and the slaves, and um, that wasn't wasn't working for him. There was a threat on his life, and then in, so this was now 622 AD, he's now 52 years old, he's been doing this for 12 years, preaching. Um, they got an offer from another city called Yathrib, or renamed Medina, saying, come to our city and we will accept you as our leader. Mm. So he moves up there, and then we see a kind of... a a Jekyll and a Hyde transformation. He'd been a peaceful preacher in Mecca for these 12 years and now he then takes up the sword and the spear and uh, gets the people of Medina behind him to go and start attacking the other people Mm. around. So Mm. not only um, the Meccans who had been his enemies who'd kind of kicked him out of town but also the surrounding tribes. And amongst the Arabs this was a common thing, you know, they were constantly fighting with each other and so they started um, invading and occupying and enslaving the people around them and gradually his empire got bigger and bigger. And so by the time he died in um, uh, uh, 632 AD at age 63, Mm. he was actually the the ruler of the whole of the Arabian Peninsula. Wow. So he's so essentially there's this sort of gradual, probably more than a gradual spread, but it's very much a military movement. Would Mm -hmm. would you say in in those first stages, apart from that first twelve years? Mm -hmm. Okay, something I I guess his personal life. uh, He was married, Mm -hmm. uh, of course. Tell us about that. Yeah. Okay. So um, interesting. So he he grew up as I mentioned. His family was um, yeah not a very wealthy family is quite poor because he was an orphan. He didn't have many resources behind him and his chances at um, getting a wife were pretty slim. Mm. But he got a job working with a lady named Khadija. Now she was a uh, an international trader. She owned a trading business and she actually employed him to work for her. They yeah. would... Um, take goods from Mecca, from the Arabian Peninsula, up to Damascus in Syria, uh, sell their goods there, buy goods and bring them back. So it was a, um, a kind of an exchange kind of a, a process that they had going on. And she employed Mecca with, uh, Muhammad when he was 25 years old, and he did such a good job. He doubled her profit. Um, and so she uh, was 40 years old. She'd been married twice and divorced, uh, sorry, and widowed. And she took a liking to Muhammad. So she actually proposed marriage to him. All right. So he got to marry the boss and not just an ordinary <laughs> boss. She was a very wealthy and powerful mm. boss. Mm. Um, and because of that, he no longer had to work. So the business was running and um, he that was when he started doing his meditating in the cave so when he was age 40 he then gets this call oh okay so that that's right at the beginning that's right at the beginning then uh, to get the timeline right yeah married 40 he gets the call yeah okay and then and then then there's that first 12 years years, and then moves on yeah Mm -hmm. okay Okay, so there's a few different stages there to muhammad's life yes now when you when you're giving us the you know this history of Mm -hmm. muhammad 
where where do all these facts come from? Because we mm-hmm. live in the era now where you know we got to fact check everything, and yes, you know yes. this has been debunked <laughs> or this is so. Where where do we get all of this history? Yeah, so the history all comes from Islamic sources, which were typically written. Um, well, the first biography of Muhammad was written 125 years after he died. Okay, um, so we get our sources from that. Um, a lot of it from the Hadith, which were written 200 years after he died. Okay. So they're pretty late sources from a historical perspective. Are, are they considered like holy books, they or are, just or just more historical, more historical books? Okay. Yeah, yeah. But but they would have the kind of. Um, a the impact because it's about Muhammad of being law for people. So it's not just information; it's actually stuff that they have to take on board. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, marries this woman, goes into ministry. At some point, he got married again, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. So she, after twenty five years of being monogamous, um, she died, um, yeah. and so she was, you know, fifteen years older than him. So yeah. she was kind of like a mother to him. Yeah. And he talks about the year that he died, that she died, the saddest year of his life. Mm. Um, it was also when he was in Mecca, and the persecution was increasing. An uncle who'd been protecting him also died the same year, so he lost his emotional protection and his political protection. His uncle had been um, making sure, keeping everyone away from him. So mm-hmm. he then became a, a kind of a public target. Um, and so he uh, then he had a couple of children from her, according to the sources, um, a couple of daughters. And so he marries another older woman to look after his daughter and th- to his daughters. And then he also gets engaged to a young girl who's six years old. Um, the daughter of his best friend, mm. um, and then when they move to Medina, he consummates the marriage when she's nine years old. Mm. So she's um, six years old when that's arranged, when and nine years old when they consummate. consummate is, yeah. that, is that like a normal thing? Yeah. In that, in well, that it's interesting because he doesn't doesn't get criticised um, for this by his contemporaries. So the assumption is child marriage was quite was quite rife during that period. Um, yeah, so it's not a practice that goes on in that you know, in that region anymore, child yeah. marriage? Uh, it does. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay. Just, so it is a cultural we thing. We had eight-year-old girls in Yemen who got married. So, um, yeah, divorced at eight years old. So, uh, yeah. You know, wow. That, that okay, so it is a cultural phenomenon cultural in that phenomenon. area. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, and not only there, also happens in other places like India and parts of Africa and whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. I, I mean, this, the interesting thing about this so far uh, for me is that you started by saying that they see him as this perfect this sort of model uh, mm. model person. There's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, one would expect that he would correct, that he would prevent, a, present a corrective to that child marriage situation. At the at the very least, um, how do you, how do Muslims is that must be enormously embarrassing mm. in this day and age. I mean, you said that it still happens in. Uh, in some Muslim countries, and I guess the fact that Muhammad did it makes it justifiable. Uh, is there an embarrassment around this for, yep. for Muslims? So, so Muslims go in two directions. Uh, firstly, they would say raise that point, he wasn't criticised for it, so it was socially acceptable. And some would even say that um, Aisha had um, passed puberty by nine years old, and so she was kind of okay for him to, you know, have, have a sexual relationship with, with her. Others would say, well, actually, because these sources are so late, um, then there's question marks about her age, and probably she was more like 18. 
Um, oh wow! Yeah, that's what they say. The uh, I mean, the textual evidence for that is non-existent. It um, the, in the the hadith. So there's the hadith are the kind of tradition books about Muhammad. Okay. Then um, that's what I did my doctorate on, um, and in the most. Uh, authentic of those, the guy mentions five times that Muhammad married her when she was six and consummated it when he was not when she was nine. Okay, so you know there's kind of strong textual evidence for that. So is the hadith? I've always thought what I've heard people or scholars or, or Muslim people talking about the hadith. I've imagined it as one book. Hmm. It's it's not actually one book. It's a range of books. Yeah, in fact, there's there's about a hundred over a oh. hundred different collections. There's six that are kind of accepted as kind of canonical. And amongst those two, that would be the the kind of the Rolls Royce gold standard called El Bukhari and Muslim are those two. Okay, and they're the ones that people would go to and say, look, if you really want to know, you need to go to these two. The other ones might provide some extra information, but it's a little bit dubious. Some of that are these like um, you know uh, what would we call it? Like you know, uh, scholars have gone into the Bible and done notes around the Bible. You know, you, you know, different sort of mm, commentaries. Commentaries yeah. is, is it? Like a commentary, yeah, or is it something different? It's quite different. Yeah, okay. they're more like um, maybe if you think, say, of the church fathers writing about the lives of the apostles or yes. something like that. Okay. Um, yeah. So they were written mm, yeah. at a, at a later stage, um, and and Muslims would say with the hadith that they were all attested by eyewitnesses who passed on their word, and they had a cha- they call it a chain of transmission okay. that lasted two hundred two hundred and fifty years. Um, so the equivalent, I would say to people, is imagine we wanted to write the story of Captain Cook, but um, there's no written sources. How would we find that out? Um, so we would go and ask somebody who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew Captain Cook, um, who had a story about him. Right. So there's typically, you know, five to ten generations of asking before you get to the, back to the original, wow. which is Western scholars say, you know, that is totally, um, yeah, totally dubious that you can't get, you know, 200 years of history passed down. Um, the Arabs would say, well, we've always done that. We've always had oral histories. That's the only way that mm. we've, they, they didn't have a written culture. Um, yeah. Muhammad couldn't read or write. Um, so that was the way that they did things. Uh, so if he couldn't read or write, obviously he's, uh, he's writing the Quran. Uh, how did that happen? Yeah, so it was a recital. So he, he says that. Um, so the the Quran, he says, was revealed over twenty three years, so from age forty to sixty three, and he received it in bits. And uh, and we know, you know, there were some that he received in Mecca, some that he received in Medina. And usually they came in kind of sound bites according to situations that he faced. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, for example, well, he besides these two women that he married, he married some, between 12 and 20 other women. So oh, right. yeah, okay. he, yeah. he had quite a harem. And in yeah. uh, one of them, the, he, two of his wives were having a, a, a fight with him about something. And he then receives a revelation about that. And, mm. and Allah gives him permission to take an action which he, he particularly wanted to take. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So they're, they're kind of, when you read through the Quran, it's, um, 
yeah, it doesn't read as a as a book. It's like a series of little episodes, and you and they don't give the context. They don't yeah. give dates. It's just there. Is know, it so. like sermons or more the like stories? Of, yeah, in fact, yeah, more they're more sermons. Okay. So yeah, yeah, and, and lots a lot of, of directive. I mean, I, I I sort of waded through it at one stage a number of years ago. <laughs> lots of just directives, laws, and, and yep. things like that, isn't there? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it was say Muhammad when people would come to him and say, "What do we need to do about this?" then he would receive a revelation from Allah and then tell them this is what Allah and says. That's, yeah. And that would be written down, that yep. becomes the mm-hmm. Quran. So um, th- there was that 12-year period where he is uh, in, in doing a more evangelistic, in, in a more evangelistic uh, role. You said he switched to a military approach. Mm-hmm. Um, is the spread of Islam from that, because obviously there was no real uptake uh, during that first 12 years, as, as you said, is is Islam then spreading? I mean, is there, is it? Does it become an evangelistic thing, or is it mainly a military expansion from that point on? Mm, yeah, um, yeah. So the from Muhammad's death, it becomes very much a military expansion. So yeah. his uh, troops then burst out of the Arabian Peninsula and started occupying uh, other other nations. So all of the places where Islam is now, most of them were um, Christian nations. So I was in Libya a couple of years ago and the guy, people I was working with took me down and showed me a site and I saw an old church in there and they said, oh yeah, there used to be Christians here. Wow. But that was pre-Muhammad. There's been no church there since this was a, a, a Roman city that had been destroyed. Yeah, wow. so, and, and even... even I mean, in his lifetime too, I mean, he's leading uh, a significant uh, military campaign even within his lifetime. Yes, yes. So he led 27 or 28 battles himself okay. um, and then sent his troops out on another 50 others. Okay. So over a 10-year period, about every six weeks or so, there was an Islamic attack somewhere in yeah. the Arabian Peninsula, yeah. and um, they were, these troops were quite mobile, so they never knew where he was going, where they were going to strike next. And so, as a result of that, people were a little bit preemptive, and they would send a delegation to Muhammad and say to him, "Don't attack us, because we will become Muslims." And okay. so they would yeah. sign oh, up wow. to Islam. Um, so Islam, yeah, and just to give you the idea of the effectiveness of the military approach, when he left Mecca in um, 622 AD, he had uh, he was aged 53 and he had 200 followers. By the time he died, he had 100,000. So right. it was yeah. very effective in terms of getting people on board. Wow. So it's often, I mean, it, it's very been very topical in the last couple of decades, uh, obviously with things like uh, ISIS and mm. and these uh, movements, um, and and often the response from uh, you know Muslims, particularly in Western countries, is to say no, Islam is a peaceful uh, religion. What would your response to that be? Yeah, so I'd say, well, when you say Islam is a religion of peace, do you mean that most Muslims are peaceful? Most Muslims don't take up uh, weapons and fight, I'd say, yes, that's true. But when you ask, when Islam comes to a country, does it bring peace or was it spread by peace? And the answer historically has to be no. 
um, because we see all through the Arabian Peninsula, um, all through, and, and not only that, you know, it moved up into um, North Africa, Southern Europe, um, and, and Eastern Europe, and then moving east across to uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. These were all military conquests. Wow. Mm. There was never a country which uh, came and said, oh, we've decided we like Islam and we want to follow it. As um, it spread then, when it moved to Southeast Asia, it became more through the work of traders preaching. But even then when, and they typically focused on the leaders, and when a leader came to power, often they would use military force to um, uh, establish Islam. So places like Malaysia, Indonesia, whatever, that was often the case. Yeah, and and even the fact that um, Muhammad himself is largely uh, spreading this through military means, you know, this th- that in a sense um, becomes part of the DNA really of the movement. Given the how Muhammad is held up as the really the highest uh, example. I mean, because um, and the reason I say that is because often, you know, people uh, will say, "Oh, yeah, but you know, like the conquest of Canaan and Moses mm-hmm. and the military campaigns." The difference there is that we're not holding Moses up as being even in the text. Moses is seen in all of his imperfection. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, it's the the one, of course, we're holding up as the model uh, human being is 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 Jesus, uh, who is preaching a, a completely non-violent hmm. uh, spread of, of the faith, very much almost um, uh, that sort of you know grassroots. The kingdom of God is not this imposing you know hmm. force. It's it's to be like yeast through the dough and and, and so forth. So uh, so it's an interesting contrast the spread of early Christianity, uh, mainly under, under persecution, persecution <laughs> yeah. uh, in that first, you know, um, crucial, yeah, three centuries of growth compared to Islam. It's really, uh, it's really quite a contrast, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and, and quite, quite significant. And people still look back to Muhammad. And it's interesting, when we lived in places like Yemen, they, there was no embarrassment about what Muhammad had done. Mm. You know, there was no sense of... In a, well, milita- in a military way. In a military way, yeah. yeah. And, you know, because they're, they're quite a, a warlike people and they look to Muhammad as their model. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> I find it's only when we came back to the West that we found this idea of Islam is a religion of peace, Kind of concept um, mm. being being promoted as you know the the way that Islam is explained. They they never had that kind of sense. It was all Islam is a religion of power and of strength, uh, and um, you know we we're you know on a roll. We're trying we're impacting nations, and military is one of the um, kind of the tools that's used for that. Yeah. Uh, qu- quick question. So it's been about. So let me get it straight here because I'm I'm loving this sort of contrast, Matt, that you're you're doing here between, you know, Jesus and 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 Muhammad, and, you know, between the two faiths. So we've had, you know, we're basically nearly two thousand years after Christ, uh, and we're about one thousand three hundred, one thousand four hundred years after Muhammad. So you know, the Christians got a drop on, the, you know, on the on the Muslims there as far as spreading their faith, but now. I, I, when I watch the news or I read something in the paper, I hear about different types of Muslims. Mm. You know, there's Shiite Muslims, there's Sunni, there's this, there's how many different? I mean, is it like sort of is that like a denomination? Mm. What does that translate that for me in my yeah. Christian Western way? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so one of the 
the mistakes that Muhammad made was when he died, he didn't designate a successor. Okay. And so um, it, when uh, he passed away, there was a bit of uh, jockeying amongst his followers on who would lead, which was now a growing empire. So, you know, they'd started off with nothing and now they had occupied the whole of the Arabian Peninsula. They were getting, um, you know, tribute money coming in from all of the different tribes. So, you know, the future was looking pretty good. And so everyone wanted a piece of the action. So amongst his followers, there was a bit of a fight amongst them uh, about who should be the the leader and ultimately his um, his best friend the, the, the father of the uh, six year old girl that he married got the job um, but there was Mohammed one of only one of his daughters had um, <clears throat> continued uh, alive the other three had died and um, she got married and so Mohammed actually had some grandsons okay and so you know you're going to follow the dynastic principle and um, Mohammed's son-in-law Ali who was also his cousin um, uh, he also put his hand up for the job but wow. didn't get it wow. um, and so there was always a bit of attention and then ultimately this guy's name was Ali he got the job he was the fourth caliph or the leader of the Muslims mm. but um, there was quite strong divisions amongst them about which way they should go there'd been the, the, the empires now expanded out and they've occupied lots of countries around them so um, Israel, Palestine, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, um, Libya, Tunisia have all been occupied by the Muslims by this stage. Wow. So they're getting lots of money coming in. And Is this like within 100 years, 200 Within 100 years, years they'd okay. occupied two-thirds of Christianity. So, uh, yeah, wow. but this was only within the first 40 years, uh, okay. probably not even that much. Maybe mm. the first 25 years they, they went through these four different leaders. And a lot of people said, well, Ali should have been the first leader. And the other said, no, no, we did the right thing appointing Abu Bakr. And so that's been the split. So the Sunnis yeah. are the ones who say any person can be the leader of the Muslims. The Shias say it needs to be someone from Muhammad's family. Okay. And so Ali... Uh, Ali got killed by another Muslim, as did three of the other four, um, uh, the other leaders. Um, and then his two grandsons also, Muhammad's two grandsons also got killed. Mm. Um, but there were children from them. And so they've established a dynastic principle, which continued for 12 uh, leaders until the 12th imam, they call them the imam, um, disappeared. And they say that he's gone into, they call it occultation or gone into hiding. He's still alive, but at once, at some stage in the future he will come out and he will reappear and he will re-establish the Islamic kingdom. So that's the Shia view. The wow. Sunnis would say, no, no, we have a caliph who gets um, uh, elected or appointed after each one dies. But the last caliph uh, was, um, a caliph was abolished in 1924 by the Turks. So it had continued all the way through that so there'd always been a caliph, a bit like the Catholic Pope. Okay. Um, and, and then Kamal Ataturk, uh, who defeated the Australian troops at Gallipoli, became the leader of Turkey and he mm. abolished the caliphate and said, we don't need that anymore. Mm. So, so the way to think about, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, is, so you, when we hear about Shia, Sunni, we hear about Sufi, you know, all these different things, mm -hmm. is that not like denominations, is that more like Roman Catholics versus Protestants versus Orthodox mm. Not that we're versus each other, but different sort of yes. arms of the Christian faith. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah, it's all about leadership and about where your sources of authority come from. Okay. Um, so those kinds of And are things. they, you know, because, I mean, one of the things about those 
with the major Christian denominations is that there are differences of opinion, but they haven't always been. Uh, I mean, there've been moments where they've really been uh, at each other. I think they're a bit more sort of conciliatory. Where are things sitting between those arms? Are they fairly conciliatory, or are they? How's that going? Yeah, so it depends on where you are. So in places like Australia, they generally get on well. Yeah. Um, and in um, in Arab countries, it depends. Yeah, a little bit on the situation. I was, last Saturday, I was talking with a, a Shia guy from Saudi Arabia, and he was really quite negative about how the Shia people are treated in there. Um, um, but the the more extreme one would be the uh, impact of ISIS, where they're a Sunni group, and they went deliberately searching for Shias and executing them. Wow. So yeah. that was why uh, they, you know, they had these big massacres up in places like Mosul. These were Shia areas and they just killed as many people as they could get their hands on. So if we bump into, uh, you know, Muslim people in, in Australia, in Victoria, mm-hmm. you know, wherever we're bumping into people in Australia, are we... How how do we know which camp they're a part of, mm-hmm. or is there overwhelmingly more of one than another? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So Sunnis are about eighty five to ninety percent of all Muslims would be Sunnis. So Shia wow. ten to fifteen. That's around the around the world. Worldwide, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and you'll get some Shia nations. So Iran is uh, predominantly Shia. Um, in Iraq, it's probably about fifty fifty percent Shia. Um, there's some Shias in. Um, Syria as well, a few in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia. So mm. they're scattered around. You'll typically find them. In but it's places. safe to assume that they're that the most Muslims that we meet are more of the Sunni. Sunni, yes, yeah, yeah, persuasion. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. be good to just uh, say something, Bernie, about uh, Muslim societies. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, Islam has spread in a very overt. Uh, that's kind of the way. Certainly, in terms of the history of the Christian church, there have been times where the power game, that power game has been played, but that's generally seen as an aberration from what Jesus taught. Uh, Islam, by its very nature, has been a very imposing uh, movement. So what does that look like? What sort of societies does it tend to create? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. so again, historically, we saw that where uh, there were a whole series of Islamic empires that split up, so you had so the, the most famous one probably would be the Ottoman Empire, which was based in um, uh, in Turkey, but there were also the Persian Empire, mm. um, and they often fought against each other or often worked together. So at mm. different times in history, mm. um, you saw their cooperation, but Usually there was a fair bit of tension and yeah. misunderstanding and, and often military yeah. fights yeah. Uh, against them. The impact of colonialism was actually quite serious in mm. that as the Western powers came and occupied a lot of these countries, they decreased the the government power of the uh, of the ruling party, whether they were Sunni or Shia, and so they took away some of those distinctives. So, for example, they weren't allowed to continue to practice Islam Islamic law, like cutting off of hands or stoning people to death, that was abolished by the colonial powers. And they said, you need to have uh, a a system which is based on Western law. So um, that still occurs now. So a lot of the Mm. countries, so places like Pakistan will have British law and they're trying to introduce some elements of Islamic law, but that's not usually the case. Usually that's kind of uh, minimised. Saudi Arabia would have kept Islamic law as much as possible. So they still have stonings, um, uh, uh, beheadings, uh, amputations, that 
um, happens still on on a on a weekly basis in in Saudi Arabia. Wow, and that's mm. uh, is and, and is. Uh, is that just in Saudi where, where else is that? Uh, so in other happening? places, uh, so uh, Iran, for example, they still do amputations, yeah. um, and people are executing uh, homosexuals. So yeah. that 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 happens, public executions. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, but when ISIS came along uh, and Al Qaeda, they said, "Well, we want to re-establish Islamic law, proper Islamic law, like Muhammad." Yeah. practiced yeah. and so they're trying to undo all of those kinds of things and even yesterday I was listening to an interview with a Taliban leader and he said well with the Americans pulling out we're going to go in and take over yeah, and worrying. the reporter said well what about the Afghani government they said well they're not following Islamic law and we're going to make them follow Islamic law so there's that kind of push uh, for that yeah. okay yeah I reckon, I reckon that's a good yep, point good. to have, have a break. I think we've established a real historical foundation. Yep. Uh, so let's have a quick break. And when we come back uh, on Thrive Perspectives, we'll sort of talk about the application for us today, yep. you know, and how to think about it today, you know, with all that history in the background. So you're listening to Bernie Powers with Matt Jacoby and myself, DJ Payne, here on Thrive Perspectives. Sorry to interrupt this great conversation with Bernie Power. Isn't he the nicest guy in the world? Not only is he the nicest guy in the world and such a genius when it comes to all things Islam, Muslim, and, and the Book of Quran, but he's also got uh, he's also an author of some amazing books. And I want to recommend one in particular, and that is Understanding Jesus and Muhammad. It sort of contrasts the difference between Muhammad and Jesus and, and helps us understand more of what he's talking about. It's a great book and a great resource. If anything that Bernie is talking about on this podcast is encouraging to you, please go over there and support this wonderful guy. The website is berniepower.com, spelled exactly as it would sound, B-E-R-N-I-E, power.com. I'm going to have all the links in the show notes and on the website so you can find it there. If you go to berniepower.com and have a look for the books, you'll have a look for the contact there. Bernie usually sells his books for about $30, including postage. He's offering it to you, our listeners of Thrive Perspectives, for $9 plus $3 postage. That's $9 plus $3 postage. Amazing offer for you for listening to this uh, uh, you know, great interview with him. So please, head over to berniepower.com. Support him. You can contact him. You can drop him a message there. $9 plus $3 postage. All you need to do is contact him through the website and say that you're a listener of Thrive Perspectives and you'll get this special offer. It's really, really generous of Bernie. And it's a great way for you to sharpen up your skills as you talk to your Muslim neighbors in your community. Now, the conversation is going to get a little bit more deeper and practical as we look at the theology and the applications around that next here on Thrive Perspectives. So... Keep on listening and go over there and support Bernie Power on his website today. All right, let's get back to the podcast. 
Collectives, it's your humble host CJ Payne here and with me as per usual as every episode, it's Matt Jacoby with us and also on this very special mm-hmm. episode we have Bernie Power, a, uh, what can I say, an authority on the Islamic faith? Is that a... Is that a... I, I call myself a specialist. <laughs> a special. Okay, we'll, we'll go specialist. We'll go specialist on the Islamic faith. Now, we've just spent the last, the first half of the episode really sort of covering the um, historical background and some of the, you know, the bigger picture around yeah. it. We want to sort of get a bit more current, probably a little bit more theological yeah. and a little bit more practical on this final half of the episode. Yeah, and I think it would be good, um, Bernie, to um, talk about the... Uh, Islamic view of God, um, of course, as as Christians, uh, the the way that we quite rightly view God is uh, particularly front loading the idea of God is love, a God of love who comes to us through Jesus Christ, bring you know to bring grace and um, and, and redemption. Tell us a little bit about the. Uh, the Muslim view of God. Mm-hmm. Um, Islam's greatest theologian, a guy called El Ghazali, he'd be like the equivalent to John Calvin or someone, mm-hmm. uh, he said, as Muslims we cannot say that Allah loves. Um, he said, and the reason for that is when you love someone or something, if that thing is absent or not returning your love, then there's a kind of a deficiency in you. Allah has no deficiencies, therefore we cannot say that Allah loves anyone. Wow. Which is pretty pretty heavy. Mm. Um, the Quran actually does say a couple of times, about 18 times, it mentions that Allah loves so-and-so, and it's the people who do good, uh, the people who obey him. So it's very much a works-based kind of appro- approach. It's not that kind of... Um, um, total and uh, uh, unwarranted, unmerited love yeah. that, that we see in the Bible. That's right, because, of course, um, the, the, the Christian uh, notion, what we would say is the biblical notion, is very much that love is an essential attribute uh, of God, and, and God loves me not because I elicit it or change something, but because God actually is love. So what is, is, is the, what, how do they view God in terms of the attributes? What is perhaps the leading attribute? Is mm-hmm. could, could we yep, yep. talk about a leading yeah, yes, attribute? So that, that's it. The leading attribute of Allah would be power. So uh, he's a God who uh, does things and gets things done. Yeah. Uh, so he creates the world. He uh, places people on it. He calls uh, people into a relationship with him, but it's not as a relationship as children, but as his slaves. Okay. So there's a verse in the Quran which says, no one comes to Allah except as a slave. Yeah. And so when Muhammad went out and started preaching that to the people, and he used, by the way, Allah is a, a, a pre-Islamic term. Um, Muhammad's father was called yeah. Abdullah. Yeah. Uh, and it was taken from the, the Hebrew term, so yeah. um, uh, Elohim or um uh, Eloha, um, and a derivation of that. Muhammad had a whole lot of names that he could have chosen, but he chose that particular one and filled it with his own particular meaning. And Allah is the supreme lawgiver. Uh, he's going to be the judge at the end of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of Muhammad's teaching uh, was about the uh, the the. Um, the threat of punishment in hell or the promise of reward in paradise. Yeah. So that's okay. the way. So, so, so they don't have this idea of God as father and, and 
we are the children of God. No, no, not at all. In fact, that they're quite scandalised that when we talk about that, uh, and they'd say, no, we, that we can't talk about God in those kind of familial terms. Yeah, because of course, you know, for example, you know, the Apostle Paul it, it speaks of himself in a sense as, as a slave, but it's more of a term of devotion on his part, because the the, the dominant idea is still that of being a child of God. Mm. But I give myself to God as a slave in that, you know, in that sense. But they, they it lacks that sense of being God's children yeah, altogether. And, and there's also this very strong sense of fear. Um, but another element that, that comes in their understanding of God is that Allah is often very capricious. So they can't predict what he's going to do. And even Muhammad himself said, well, um, you know, will you, someone asked him, will you enter heaven by your good works? And he said, well, I can't say say that no one can enter by their good works it's all based on on the will of Allah so it tends to very much a fatalistic perspective on life and we found this as we lived in Muslim countries that people would often absolve themselves from responsibility and they would say inshallah if Allah wills then such and such will happen and so they would often not you know get vaccinated for medicines or um, take on take on things because they felt that this was Allah's responsibility rather than their own so so we as Christians we have a we have a theology and a view and the cornerstone of Christianity is salvation through Jesus Christ you know we you know that's that's what it's all about you know even someone who is looking at Christianity from the outside would say okay that's the basis of your faith what would be the Islamic or the Muslims idea of salvation is it is it is it a totally foreign thing? Mm-hmm. Yep. So the word salvation actually only occurs once in the Quran, and there it's typically in the sense of um, Allah saving a person from a physical or mm. um, a calamity, that kind of thing. Uh, they they do believe in this concept of heaven and hell, uh, but they uh, and that will be based partly on their good works or their or their bad works, uh, depending on which those are. They believe that each person has an angel on uh, on both shoulders. So the one on their right shoulder writes all their good deeds. The one on their left shoulder writes all their bad deeds. Just, just like in the cartoons. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah like in the cartoons yeah. that I see of little, yeah, yeah. little yeah. there's yeah. an angel and a devil yeah, on there. Yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, that, that kind of concept. Wow. And, and that on the day of judgment, a person's record, uh, everything that they've done and said and thought will be brought up before them. But Allah can also make a decision based on completely different grounds. So there's no sense that it's going to be a, a kind of a pass-fail thing from your, from your results. Allah can decide with some people that he's going to send them to hell and with some people that he's going to send them to heaven. So they have a very strong predestinary view that each person's fate is already determined before they were born so that's okay yeah. so so then on this basis uh, a muslim never really knows where they stand with allah yeah totally and even muhammad himself said you know i don't know what's going to happen to me and i don't know what's going to happen to you so wow because it's i mean it's that's contrast in, in some so much with the christian idea that that we, you know, Christ came so that we do know where we stand with God. But even, I mean, even you can't, and as you said, you can't even be assured through uh, a life of good works. Even then, you can't. If, if, if it, even Muhammad himself 
couldn't be sure. There's a hadith in which Muhammad says, uh, a person can spend all their life doing the works which would lead them to paradise, but then they'll get within, he says, a cubit, an arm's length of paradise, and then they'll do the wrong things which will send them to hell because that's where they were predestined for. Okay. And alternatively, a person can spend their whole life doing the, the evil things which would pre, which would send them to um, to hell and they, they get within an arm's length and then they do the good thing which sends them to paradise um, because that's where they were predestined. So okay, there's yeah. very much, you know, you're not even right up until the last moment of your life, you don't know what's going to happen to you. So what what is the role for Muslims then of of prayer? Obviously the there's this practice uh, of praying five times a day uh, you know particularly Muslim countries you hear the call to prayer and mm. what are they what are they doing there and why are they doing that yeah so they call that salah and they, they do that as a good work so that's one of the requirements so when Muhammad went out preaching he told the people they have to do these things so they have to recite the shahada or the statement of faith to become a Muslim mm. they have to be engaged in the five daily prayers they have to fast during Ramadan uh, they have to give uh, zakat or charity and amount mm-hmm. of set and have to go on hajj if if that's possible yeah. so those are the kind of the five pillars and if you fulfill those they're all seen as good works that will uh, increase your stakes with Allah okay but when they're when they're praying uh, is it are they praying for God to change things or intervene? What are they doing there? So the five uh, daily prayers are set. So it's all in Arabic and it's a kind of a, a, a set ritual. And oh, right. Okay. Yeah, so it's all related to praising Allah, reciting verses from the Quran, uh, those kinds of things. After that, they have a, another type which they call dua. Um, mm. And sometimes you'll see them sitting in the mosque with their hands raised and they'll be praying for their own particular needs. So if they need a job or member of their family is sick or yeah. something like that yeah. they'll pray and ask Allah to respond in those ways but those aren't seen as things that would gain them in terms of any any uh, spiritual okay. merit okay so uh, I mean the other thing about the biblical faith is it's very much uh, a matter of promise fulfillment uh, you know that kind of sequence is really ties the whole Bible together in many respects uh, is there a sense of that in uh, in Islam? No, not in terms of um, a, a believing in that, that any redeemer or saviour will come. <coughs> so it's really all left up to themselves. The, okay. the prophets, of whom they, they count Jesus as one of them, but Muhammad is the best one, uh, were the ones who told them how they should live and gave them revelations. So they basically brought along more law and said, okay. you, you now have to obey these laws. Um, and so with Islam, they get more laws that the Jews didn't have, that the Christians didn't have. Um, so that that kind of burden has increased, yeah, okay. and so it's really left up to a person themselves uh, on how obedient they are, and uh, that may influence their ultimate destiny, but they can't be sure of that. Okay, you, you mentioned you mentioned Jesus there that yeah. they they actually view Jesus as a, mm. as a prophet. Uh, so that's a question that I would definitely love to love to find your expert opinion on because I've heard different things from different either Muslim people or people defending Muslim faith that, you know, about their view of Jesus. How would you sum up 
the Islamic view on Jesus Christ. Mm, yeah, yeah. So I, I talk about Jesus Light, L-I-T-E, uh, that they've got a view of him. So they believe that he was born of a virgin. So um, Mary, uh, for example, is the only woman named in the whole Quran. So no other woman <laughs> okay. is named. Uh, um, Jesus uh, is mentioned about 25 times in the Quran, about uh, nearly 100 verses about him. And they talk about his birth, uh, his uh, miracles, uh, a little bit about his teaching. But the question about his death is a little bit uncertain. Um, mostly Muslims would say that that, that it's denied, that okay. uh, Jesus never died, that Allah took him up alive to heaven. And so Jesus is now in heaven, alive, um, waiting to come back at the end of time. Uh, he will establish a kingdom of um, justice and peace. And then, this is not in the Quran, this is in the Hadith, then he will die uh, and then the day of resurrection will come and everybody will stand and be judged uh, including Muhammad by Jesus no not by Jesus by, by Allah. Allah yeah mm-hmm. okay so t- turning then to the uh, element of the future mm-hmm. uh, for Muslims so they see that there's still a, um, a role that Jesus Christ plays for them in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we think that uh, because Muhammad had Christian contacts and there's a lot of um, material or some material about Jesus and, and a lot about Jews in the in the Quran, and so he was trying to incorporate those in order to uh, win the Jews and the Christians over to his side. Okay. The, 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 um, the pagans turned to be enemies, uh, uh, turned out to be enemies for him because they didn't like him talking about getting rid of all their gods, but he thought, well, maybe the Jews and the Christians will support me. So he included more and more material, this would be my perspective, in the Quran in order to uh, bring them over to his side. Um, But he didn't get all the material right. Um, There's a lot of Christian and Jewish legends that are included in the Quran. Um, You know, he couldn't read. There were no written sources around. He just heard things as he was trading and traveling around, and so they all got included in there okay so um so the end the end of history uh for the muslims involves a return of christ (laughs) a judgment you said and a resurrection of the dead (laughs) what follows that uh so then all people will be sent to either uh, paradise or to hell but hell is uh, a temporary place so people can spend some time in hell. So it's a bit more like the Catholic idea of purgatory. Yeah. Um, and so if a person uh, has committed sins, uh, then they will spend time in hell um, uh, being cleansed and paying for their sins. And, yeah. you know, I talk with Muslims. I say, oh, yeah, we'll be in there like for thousands of years. Okay. And there's different levels of torment. So uh, the the fire, you know, Muhammad's uncle was told, you know, he'll, he'll stand in the fire just up to his ankles. But his brains will boil out because of that but other people will be right up to their necks in the fire and there's there's quite um, graphic descriptions both in the Quran and the Hadith of the punishment that people Mm. go through hell so a lot of Muslims are really fearful about that and they're convinced that they will spend some time in in hell but then at different times when their sins have been paid for or when someone intercedes for them uh, either uh, a, a family member, a relative or Muhammad or the angel 
angels or even Allah himself, then they can be taken out of hell and taken into paradise. Okay, yeah. But some people will go directly to paradise. So um, people who were martyrs mm-hmm. are, are guaranteed paradise. So if a person dies um, fighting for Islam, then they won't spend any time in hell. They okay. will go directly into paradise and they can also intercede for 70 members of their family. So um, it becomes a, it's a bit of an advantage to have a, a, a martyr or two in your family as a result of that because they'll be uh, yeah. putting in a good word for you at the uh, crucial time. So does that, I mean, we, we've, we've talked about um, Islam as you know, that sort of milist, militaristic element in Islam. That obviously must be a massive incentive for that militaristic element if, if you uh, are killed in the um, course of jihad hmm. that you get to go straight to. And that this is pretty much the only assured way. Yeah, um, uh, yeah surely that's a, a massive incentive for that to continue for those for those militaristic movements to continually pop up within Islam. Yeah, and and it, and it is used. So, like when we lived in um, places like Yemen, um, Al Qaeda was recruiting people <laughs> from Yemen to go and fight yeah. in in uh, Russia at that time. Sorry, yeah. in. Um, Afghanistan at that time, yeah, yeah. and they were reciting these verses from the Quran that right. if you die fighting, and in Arabic in the path of Allah, then you have a great reward. And in the Hadith, Muhammad says, "Yeah, that's direct entry into into paradise." And, um, and that, of course, is would be the case with this with suicide bombing as well. Totally. Yep. Yep. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've we've got a bit of their theology under our belt mm-hmm. to sort of give us an idea of, of how it is. I want to I want to ask something that might be really naive, and uh, you know, for some people, it might be fairly offensive. Um, do the average Muslim person that I'm meeting, you know, uh, 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 you know, at the school, dropping off their kids, at you know, whatever the mm-hmm. shops, uh, driving the Ubers, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. wherever I meet, you know, my Muslim neighbours and stuff here, uh, where I live. Um, they all seem to be, you know, sincere family people, good people, moral people. They actually are excited when they find out that I'm a, I'm a Christian. There's a there's a real, uh, you know, excitement that there is a shared sort of faith, among, you know, um, amongst people. Are they? Is the average Muslim a good person going to church, or you know, because that's the tradition? Mm. Or are they someone who really looks into the Quran and wants to understand it? And there's a depth of theology there. Is I know I'm asking a wildly generalistic mm-hmm. question, but you've you've talked to you know hundreds of thousands of people here in Australia alone about their Muslim faith. Is is it you know what what would it be what would be your estimation yeah. there? Yeah. So I always talk, um, and and Muslim scholars would give this kind of perspective. They would say of all the Muslims, about fifteen percent would be what they call um, radical or fundamentalist. Seventy percent would be traditional, and another fifteen percent would be liberal. Um, so um, you know you'll you'll meet people who will say, yeah, well, look, I I just follow Islam because that's what I was brought up with. But there's nothing, uh, you know, I, I don't do anything about it. So would just follow it as a faith and so they would uh, go and maybe say their prayers. Only about 30% of the Muslims in Australia practice. So go to the mosque from year to year or or Mm. whatever, 70% don't. So chances are you'll meet a Muslim and and it'll just be, well, that's my identity, but I don't do much about it. But 
the real issue would be these kind of 15% down at the radical end who would be pushing for um, the establishment of, of Islam and, and they're here in Australia, I've met them, um, and they're... So they'll be the people who will typically come out quite strongly in support of Islam and uh, not allow any kind of criticism of Islam. So, uh, yeah, you'll get that whole range there. But most, you know, most uh, uh, Muslims, like most people, you know, they just want to have a a good life. They want to live in peace. They want their kids to grow up well. They want to have a job. Mm. You know, they want to retire and those kinds of things. So that would be the kind of thing that's pushing most Muslims. So, so what would be your advice, and Matt? I don't want to, you know, no, no, we're no, running out good, of time, good, but, yeah. I want, but I want to sort of jump to the practical mm-hmm. end of the stick here. What would be your advice? I'll give you a scenario, mm-hmm. and you know, tell me what I should, should or shouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I jump into an Uber. Mm-hmm. I'm chatting to the guy. I find out that he is a, you know, he he works in one of the local mosques, mm-hmm. and he's you know come here to Australia. So thankful to be in Australia because he came out of a place of persecution, and mm-hmm. he had to wait to get to Australia. And his family are all learning, and they're going to be valuable members of society. Mm-hmm. And he finds out that I'm, I'm a person of faith. And he's like, well, come, I want you to come to my mosque. I want, And he really wants a deep discussion. He really is enjoying this type of thing. He wants to talk more about it. And I usually just go, you know, oh, don't call me, I'll call you. And I, and I don't go any, go any deeper. What what should be my attitude there as a, as, a, as, a, as a passionate believer in Jesus? How do I enter into a, a conversation with a, with a Muslim neighbour? <laughs> yeah, um, I think yeah, that's that's really good. And when you meet a, a Muslim, the, you know, then when I'd say, "Oh, look, I'm really glad, um, you know, that you're also a person of faith," because I'm a person of faith, you know, I really want to um, serve God and and to be a child of God in the best possible way that I can. And I think that's probably the same for you. So we share that in common, but we really do have some quite significant differences about that, you know. Well, with the one one time with this scenario, and again. And it's happened to me a few times because I'll start talking to to a few people uh, around this, and they'll go, "Well, you're a Christian. I'm, I, we, it, we just call God a different name. <laughs> you call him God. I call him Allah. It's the same thing behind it." Da da da. And I go. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. So, what, what would you be advising? Yeah, my response. Yeah, I, I actually, I, was, I do debates as met, mentioned before with Muslim scholars, and they're all online, so you can have a look at them. Um, and at one, a guy got up and said, "Why do we have to debate these things? Why can't we just agree that all, we all believe in one God?" And I said, "Well, do we?" I said, "Can I get the Muslims to raise their hands?" And I did, and I said, "I'm going to say something, and if you disagree, pull your hand down." So I started with the Apostles' Creed, and I said, "I." Believe believe in God, the Father Almighty, and down came the hands. Creator of heaven and earth, hands went up again. Um, uh, and in Jesus Christ, hands went up. Um, his only His only son, hands went down. <laughs> Born of the Virgin Mary, hands went up. <laughs> Suffered under Pontius Pilate, died and was buried, hands went down. And I said, look, I've only got two sentences through this and you can't agree. We can't agree with this. So there's really some serious differences here. We yeah. can't talk about, can't say that we're worshipping the same God. Mm. Okay, so if we can't say that, you know, if we, if we can't go down that you know, because that's seen as seen as a really high ideal in our society. You know, mm-hmm. to be tolerant, Tom, to be mm-hmm. to coexist, to really get along with each other, and hey, we're all in this together. And, and in one sense, you know, in a cultural sense, yeah, we are all you know in this land together. And we want to get along with our neighbour. But if it comes to talking about 
what really matters about being in the kingdom of Christ, being in Jesus's kingdom. How do we talk to our Muslim neighbors about, you know, entering into this kingdom? How how do we get to get them to see that we have something that they don't have? Mm, yeah. So I I talk about this and we do this every Saturday. We're out on the streets in Melbourne chatting with people and we particularly focus on Muslim people and talk about the impact of faith uh, on us. So last Saturday, for example, I had a a Buddhist, a girl who was a Buddhist who'd become a Christian and we're talking with a a young woman from Saudi Arabia. And uh, I said to turn to this girl and I said, well, you haven't always been a Christian. Why did you become a Christian? And so she was able to share that from her perspective, basically share her testimony about things that Buddhism didn't offer uh, that Christianity did. So that's an important one to to speak about, well, what's been the impact for you as a person? Um, And, you know, issues like uh, forgiveness of sin, of God being with you, but being with you as a as a loving father uh, is an important one. Um, a God that you can rely on, a God who's got a, um, a, a plan for history and who is working it out uh, in a way that he's made clear to people. Um, mm. So these are quite different from this. Seems, seems to me that there's actually an enormous opportunity here to speak to some really core concerns. Uh, mm. There's some sort of gaping holes there in things like assurance, mm-hmm. salvation. You know, you talked about uh, that that fear and, and not in the sense of the, the legitimate positive fear of the Lord in terms of that reverent fear, but but a scary, they're actually really scared. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems to me that, yeah, there are some really real opportunities here to actually, uh, and a framework within which actually to talk about what Jesus uh, offers. Yes, oh, and and that would be the the kind of thing. So I would say, well, the kind of person that Jesus was. Let me just tell you a few stories about him. Um, uh, really encouraged me in terms of approaching God. So I don't approach God with fear. I can approach him as Hebrews says with confidence mm. and uh, uh, knowing that He's a God who uh, who accepts me, who welcomes me, who loves me, mm. uh, which is not things that people yeah. that Muslim people can say. Yeah, I've. I've met, you know, numbers of, of Muslims who have come to faith. Um, and it seems to me that uh, this is happening. There are numbers of Muslims coming to faith. Do you know much about that in terms of that sort of movement? I mean, I, I've heard, uh, you know, reports of uh, really significant growth in the Christian movement in Iran, mm-hmm. uh, for example, uh, can you talk about that? Yes, perhaps? yeah. So the estimate is maybe a million Iranians have come to faith uh, in Christ, uh, in, either in in Iran or outside. So that's been wow. a real big mover. Um, we're seeing that. I, I had a conference at MST a couple of years ago and invited Iranian Christians. We had two hundred of them turn up. Uh, for wow. that, so uh, you know, and and there were a whole lot of others who contacted me and said, "Look, we can't come because we're fearful of the government finding out about us and uh, you know, um, kind of impacting our families." Um, so that's been a real big growth. But we're seeing people from all over the world. I've got friends from Saudi Arabia, um, from Libya um, yeah. who've come to faith. Yemenis, we've seen Yemenis come to faith. So yeah. in these really kind of difficult places. Um, uh, you know, trying to live there as faithful, you know, followers of Jesus is a real challenge for them. But they can see 
the the problems in the holes within the Islamic understanding of the world. That that's yeah. why they're willing to take that step. Yeah, I remember about twenty years ago, I heard a, a, a someone say who had. Uh, been involved in some sense with uh, Islamic evangelism, saying that they thought about 80% of um, Muslims came to faith through some kind of remarkable circumstance, often visions of Jesus. And and, and I've heard that actually again and again from a number of uh, places. And, and And then actually talking to people that have come to faith from Muslim backgrounds, uh, in my experience, it is often remarkable. In fact, I was talking to uh, someone who you and I pr- pr- probably both know is in my worldview class, uh, actually an uh, Iranian guy, and I asked him, how did you come to faith? And surely enough, he said, "I, you know, there was this vision of Jesus. Has that been, has that been your experience? Yeah, very common, and particularly amongst Iranians. So we had a young Iranian doctor who came to faith uh, just uh, last year. Same kind of thing. He'd, he'd actually made the decision or was thinking, considering making the decision for Jesus and a couple of guys in in old clothes um, turned up and he said they were like from a long time ago you know that that kind Mm. of ancient and they said to him you're on the right path so he took that as a kind of a uh, an affirmation of of yeah yeah, I remember I I asked a a guy uh, actually a um uh, one of the Christian leader of who'd come to faith and uh, you know I asked him why why is that what you know why <laughs> is it in this particular way and, and i mean his explanation was that he felt it's it's just there's a it's a certain kind of almost spiritual stronghold uh that um th- that almost requires something like that uh, often uh to to court because it's quite a it's it's quite a significant shift mm-hmm. um yeah it's it's interesting and obviously i mean for example, in Iran, I mean that would, and I've, I've, I'd heard this. I think it was in a, a Christianity Today article that cited as being, I think, one of the fastest growing churches in the world, mm-hmm. uh, in Iran, where it's mm-hmm. uh, actually illegal, I think, to convert to it Christianity. Is, yep, yep. There's lots of people in prison in Iran for for that. So. Mm-hmm. So, what, what in your in your expert opinion, and having lived experience in your understanding of the scriptures, both you know the Christian scriptures and and, and the Islamic scriptures, why? I'm going to ask a really you know blunt question here. Like Matt saying, there are so many Iranian people I know and I've met, and I'm a very conservative Christian. So when even a Christian says I've had these visions, I sort of go, uh, uh, and then I. But yet I know so many. I know so many. You know, uh, let me say Messianic Muslims. You know, people who still identify. You know, as you know, this is my tradition. This is where I come from. But I believe in Jesus, and I say why, and they're like, well, he appeared to me, or some, or a vision, and I'm like, what is going on? How do you? How do you? Where do you? Where do you come at this with yeah. scripture? Yeah, like if if we come at it from a Western secular world worldview, it doesn't make sense. But if we <laughs> if we go back into the Bible, we see God often spoke to people through dreams and visions. It, yeah, it's yeah. not not something that's unusual, and it's a kind of a bit of a rebuke to us uh, <laughs> in that you know where God you know mm. sent us into the world to make disciples of all nations, and um, we've typically thought of Islam as too hard. You know, we when we we got involved uh, with Muslims, only two percent of missionaries were being sent to Muslims, and they were about twenty percent of the world's population. Mm. It's now risen up to about six percent. 
Um, but yeah, still we're we're not putting the resources in. And part of it is you can't get into these countries. You get kicked out of these countries, as happened to us several times. Um, you know, and it's difficult to to do that. But there is a, a, a it's a kind of a stronghold there. And uh, I, I think you know I would see Islam as the biggest threat to the church uh, in the you know in the coming years. Wow. Um, so Islam is growing. It's got uh, economic, uh, military, political power. Um, yeah, and uh, I think that's why you know we need to be involved in the front line challenging it. And yet, even though it's presenting that threat, yet in the very places where the threat is the gra- greatest, the church is growing the fastest. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, I, I, it's it's interesting though that w- it is true. I guess we tend to put it in the too hard basket, uh, and yet clearly. Um, based on the fact that you've got the fastest growing church in a Muslim country, you've got all these Muslims coming, uh, it's obviously not too hard for God. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I spoke at uh, um, a, a meeting and one of the guys uh, got asked a question. He said, look, I've been reading some Islamic eschatology and I'm really scared. And I said, well, I've been reading some Christian eschatology and I'm really encouraged. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and look, I mean, th- there's an opportunity, isn't there, in the fact that um, lots of people from Muslim countries are uh, coming to Australia to live in Australia. Um, I, I heard a Christian leader say once, um, we didn't go to them, so God brought them to us. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and he That's was good. saying that in the context of the fact that Christians are often complaining about all of these Muslims coming in and moving into their neighbourhoods. <laughs> and, and that was his response. Well, we didn't go to them, so God's, aren't, we, aren't we blessed because God's brought them to us? You know? <laughs> I, I, I love that point. So on the back of that point, it's, we're run, we've run out of time. I'd love to give you the final word, Bernie. In, in the light of what Matthew just said, you know, a lot of us might say, man, I've got, you know, my kids are going to school. There's there's Muslim parents there, Muslim kids. You know, my, my middle son, one of his best friends is a beautiful, you know, African Muslim kid who I've got a lot of time for and, and I love them spending time together. And I'm always looking for ways to engage in, you know, in a conversation about faith and stuff with, with, with these Muslim friends and neighbours. What would be the number one thing that you would say in your experience that we should keep in mind as we go out there and talk to, you know, these Muslim people? Yeah, so my, my big message to people is don't fear, don't don't be afraid of Muslims because people are often intimidated by them, you know, because of their their history of violence and and because they're quite strong and convinced about their faith. And I think we need to um, to, to kind of match that with our own zeal for Christ and to say, look. Jesus has done so much for me and to be unapologetic about it I know that's you know kind of not the the PC approach that you know you're supposed to respect other people's religions and not talk about that I think we we need to move beyond that and mm. say look yeah. we've actually got a posit- positive message you know when Jesus came he did something in human history that's still living on today and uh, you know we're, we're going to speak about that and talk about that what he's done in history but also what he's done in me um, so that, uh, yeah, you don't fear, fear Muslims, but you're quite ready to share the gospel with them. Thanks for listening to Thrive Perspectives. We want to hear from you, so send us your big questions and ideas. Our home on the internet is thrivetoday.tv. 
You can contact us, download other shows, see all of our resources and much, much more at our website, thrivetoday.tv. The Thrive Today Network is on Facebook. Our Facebook page and links to our community groups are waiting for you. Just search and like Thrive Today page in Facebook now. Visiting the website, ratethispodcast.com slash thriveperspectives really helps us reach more people. So head to ratethispodcast.com slash thriveperspectives. We hope that these shows will challenge you to look at life from a new perspective and thrive. This was another DJP.FM production. <laughs>